This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for the 2018 Pastor School, May 28th through the 30th, in partnership with Pittman Center of Congregational Enrichment. This year's guest speaker topics will focus on leadership and perilous times. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's presenting sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with professor and activist Drew Hart, author of Preaching in the Era of Trump, Wes Allen, and this summer's General Assembly keynote speaker, Jerusha Neal. Our guest for this week's podcast is Daniel Burke, the religion editor of a local news outlet called CNN. Daniel is the former associate editor and national correspondent at the Religion News Service. He's a graduate of Georgetown University and a dual degree graduate of Columbia University, where he earned an MS in journalism and an MA in comparative religion. You probably best know him for his writing at the Lancaster newspaper. And I did do some fascinating reading, uh, by the way, of a 2005 article you wrote on the Amish McGrain Institute programs. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about anything that's developed from that 2005 piece? Oh, wow. That was, that was the first piece that I think I did where I kind of married an interest in, in investigative stuff and religion. And it came out in a really interesting way. So I moved from New York City, where, as you mentioned, I went to graduate school, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, Cornfields, barns, Amish, all that. And my wife and I, we absolutely loved it. If there were one place we'd go back, it'd probably be Lancaster. People were amazing. And we got to know the Amish. And, you know, just through conversations with folks, I started hanging out at, um, they would have bake sales and stuff like that on Saturday morning to raise money for their uh, volunteer fire department. So I started hanging around those, talking to people, getting them familiar with me. And one of them mentioned, you know, kind of as an aside, that there was this group called the McGrain Institute, which was going into Amish communities and talking about sexual abuse in a way that people felt was actually convincing victims to come forward who hadn't been abused. Uh, and that was the main crux of the problem. People didn't know this was not a, an accredited psychological institution. Uh, the guy who, who ran it at the time um, was kind of, um, the perception from the Amish was that he was more interested in money than in real kind of spiritual, emotional, physical healing. And so it really roiled the community to the point where some of the Amish who really liked what he was doing split off. And the bishop said, 
this guy's not welcome in our community anymore. And so I actually followed up a couple of years later with one of the groups that had um, split off and started doing their own faith healings. And they were kind of inching more and more towards the evangelical world and um, were definitely a splinter, small, small, small part of, of the Amish. But you reminding me that I really want to go follow up and see what happened uh, with them. Well, all I know is that the news Lancaster newspaper is going to be uh, doing their Google analytics and be like, why in the world was somebody right outside of Raleigh, <laughs> North Carolina, reading a 2005 article in the Amish? But so qu- funny, quick story about the about Lancaster PA is my parents went up there when I was a kid and they came back with this footrest. It looked like a raccoon. Why they ever bought that? Because it didn't fit everything else. In the house. <laughs> but on the bottom of it is a tag that says Lancaster County Intercourse, Pennsylvania. And we oh, yeah. always, you know, of course, adolescent boys thought that was the greatest thing ever. That and reading Song of Songs and, you know, your typical Southern Baptist uh, balcony. But <laughs> so anyways, hey, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for joining the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So Intercourse PA is like a, it's a uh, refrigerator magnet that almost everyone in Lancaster has on the refrigerator. <laughs> so definitely have heard that joke. Uh, I've seen it in every Amish market and it's a evergreen, as we say in the news business, always funny. <laughs> yeah, we have a town in North Carolina called Middlesex. So that's got to go right up there with intercourse. Okay. So intercourse is right. Well, I can't say this on the radio <laughs> or on a podcast, but it's right near another town. If you're looking at a map and you want to see intercourse, there's another town with a very funny name that's sort of related. Um, so I'll invite your listeners to go and Google map that and figure out what I'm talking about. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm not actually listening. I'm trying to find out exactly. All right, we'll find that. We'll find that later. All right. So, you know, I, I read a bunch of your work. I know a bunch of my colleagues read your work. Um, of course, we see some of the, the contributions um, on air, but tell us, tell us more about you. Obviously, we know your, uh, your background, but uh, kind of what, what brought you to Georgetown, what brought you to Columbia, and then um, and landing you at uh, the world's largest broadcasting uh, network. Yeah. Um, how did a guy who only ever wanted to be a writer and was terrified of live speaking on television wind up at CNN and who didn't own a TV for many years? <laughs> it's kind of um, a weird journey. But so you mentioned Georgetown. I took a class there. It's actually um, required for all incoming students in the College of Arts and Sciences to take a class called The Problem of God. And it was really the, the first in-depth theology course that I'd ever taken. And we were reading Hume and Locke and Rousseau, the Enlightenment thinkers. It was taught in a Socratic way in that, and I still remember the professor's name, Chester Gillis. Um, he would go row up one row and, and down the other and ask us questions from the reading and you could not hide. It was a class of about 15 people. And I got really, really, really into the reading and really, really, really into the class. And it, it kind of took apart these questions that I, that I had in the back of my brain, but had never been asked or never been asked to, to discuss, like, is there a God? If there is a God, what does that mean for how we should behave? What is a religion? Uh, all of these kind of baseline questions where you're 18, you're introduced to these thinkers and your mind kind of explodes. And <laughs> what's interesting and also maybe a little bit um, and indicative of what a slow thinker I am is that I am still asking those questions that Chester Gillis asked me 20 years ago and just asking them of more and more people 
as I get the opportunity to kind of move around the world. But there's basically at, at heart the same questions. And they're the best questions I think you can ask about our existence. They're the only questions that really matter to me. And the fact that I'm paid to do it uh, is kind of unbelievable. So I'll stop there unless you want to ask more. But that's the kind of the motivation for me in this is that I do have these deep questions about how we're supposed to live, what comes next, how we're supposed to treat our brothers, how do we really alleviate suffering, um, what is ignorance, and what, if anything, can journalists do to kind of combat that, um, and also how to kind of write about religion from a nonpartisan um, kind of secular perspective, but also be as close to people's experience as you can get. Um, and, and, and kind of describing it truly without kind of crossing the line into advocacy. Um, it's, it's kind of like every story presents its new challenges. Uh, and I love that about it. It's always new. Uh, every day you come in, it's a different set of kind of challenges on your desk. Hmm. Those are fascinating questions. Uh, yeah, I, uh, they interest me. I mean, at, at the heart of, of what I do, not only... Um, you know, my, my role at CBF uh, is um, obviously hosting this podcast, but I work with people who are starting new faith communities around the country. And then I uh, help start a faith community in North Carolina. And uh, we create a culture of, um, of asking questions and thinking deeply and not just uh, assuming we know the answers to all things. So I think that is at the heart of all of us, no matter what faith we um, ascribe to, that we have these um, these deep carnal questions within our soul that we, we beckon to find the answer to. So that's fascinating. So that, that drew you into uh, not just writing, but writing about religion. Yeah. That, I mean, from the beginning, I, I really only wanted to write about religion. And so from after Georgetown, I, I had like a, a double major in English lit and theology. And you know, what you do with those degrees is you, <laughs> you starve. So I moved to New York City. I got a job at Random House, kind of sorting mail uh, type stuff and tried to write fiction and just, you know, 22 year olds, you don't really have enough life experience to write about, at least not well, and at least not me. And so I was kind of bumming around a while and um, thought, you know, there's a famous Pete Hamill line that if you, if you want to be a writer, there's two things you can do. You can become a cab driver or you can become a journalist because the idea is to get out of your own brain and to start talking to people, learn their stories. And once you can tell a story, you can tell your own. And so I kind of took that to heart and I applied to, to grad school out of the blue. Uh, they had a dual degree pro. I'd never done journalism before in my life, not even the school paper. Um, so I applied out of the blue. They had a dual degree program where you could do a year getting a master's in religion and a year getting a master's in journalism. And I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. And there were four people in the program, so it was really small. You get kind of in-depth attention from the administrators and from the, uh, the faculty. And that's actually why I got the job in Lancaster, because the editor had seen my resume, had seen that I studied religion and thought, oh, this guy would be really helpful, in, perhaps, in covering the Amish here. And so it, it basically was not only a great two years in which I have to say I met the love of my life, my wife, so that's great anyway, but... Um, also in just kind of like preparing me to write about religion and, and giving me someone who had no clips, you know, in my journalism files, some, some kind of background where I could actually get hired in the news world. Hmm. 
So a couple of years in Lancaster and then you found yourself at the Religion News Service? Yeah, so I actually interned at Religion News Service uh, during college. Uh, a friend of my wife actually knew, knew the editor and, and she invited me to kind of meet him and apply and we got along. And so uh, I interned there first and then it was only, I was only in Lancaster about a year and a half before the editor, whose name is Kevin Ekstrom, a uh, great guy, hired me down at, at RNS and spent seven years there, which is a nice kind of biblical amount of time. And the awesome part about that is you're writing about religion every day and you're working with other people who write about religion every day. And it's a daily discipline. You, you have to file at a certain time every day. You have to try to read sources. Uh, you got to fact check. You got to copy edit all that kind of stuff. It kind of hammers into you the, the nuts and bolts of how to do this job. Um, and you're meeting a ton of people. You're meeting the heads of the Episcopal Church. You're heading, you know, meeting Catholic bishops. Everywhere you go, you're kind of being introduced to a new religious facet, new religious person, new religious idea. And so it was the most amazing training ground for becoming a religion journalist that you could really ever have. Hmm. Kind of looking over uh, some of the things you've written on over the last uh, couple of months, uh, this lifelong shadow over Billy Graham's children, Pope Francis' knowledge of uh, clerical sexual misconduct, the Me Too movement within the Mormon tradition, the deep theological implications of Star Wars, which we're going to come back to and settle in for a little bit there, <laughs> and the religious landscape of the Alabama Senate race. Um, you, you hit on some a pretty diverse spectrum, of, of course, of, of religious topic. What's that like, trying to, to cover religion um, on the most um, widely published news outlet in the world? I don't think about that last part of that sentence at all, to be honest. My, <laughs> I guess my, a lot of pressure if you do, right? <laughs> it, it's not, it's the pressure. It's just, I never thought that way. Like people, I, I hear this question time to time, journalists, like who's your audience, who are you writing for? And it sounds kind of selfish, but like, I'm not writing for that audience. I'm writing for, for me. And like, I'll, I definitely am edited and I, and I definitely care what people think but I'm not writing to appeal to a particular audience. And so when I think about, I don't think about where it ends up or, or, or how, you know, widely it will be shared. I, I just don't, it's not even like a kind of psych you out thing. I just don't think about it. Um, why I do stuff widely is because <laughs> that's, that's the name of the game these days. There's so much happening um, that, in order just to kind of keep afloat, to keep abreast of the news, that's what you have to do. Like to keep up with the great work that that they're doing at the Washington Post, at Acts of Faith, to keep up the great work that Emma Green is doing, Lori Goodstein of the New York Times, uh, Time Magazine. Everyone is doing. It's kind of a, a really golden age for religion journalism, and and to keep up with them is inspiring. It's a little bit of an can I say ass kicking. But like you see what they do and you want to do the same thing and you want to cover religion as well as you can. And that means you have to be diverse. You can't kind of like what I love about magazine writers, is they can kind of spend a couple of months digging into one thing. And I've done that in the past, but it seems like the call to duty right now is more. There is so much going on that you kind of have to keep one eye constantly on your news feed and one eye on what you are actually working on at the time, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. so as, as you, I mean, as you write on this, I think that's fascinating. I think that's a, the way to approach that in, in such a, um, 
honest way, because at the end of the day, I think if you're writing to service an audience, uh, you somewhat can lose your soul in that versus if you're writing to what motivates that deep, um, those deep abiding questions that you, you spoke about earlier, you find yourself, um, do you find yourself wanting more, seeking more, trying to find the stories that really matter to you? That's right. And, and I, I, should, I should nuance that a little bit. I'm not just writing for myself. I am, in a lot of cases, just trying to convey what the people have told me as well as I can. So in a way, like I'm not writing for them. When I'm writing about Donald Trump, I'm not writing about Donald Trump. But I am actually trying to convey what Donald Trump thinks in the most accurate way possible. And I'm trying to convey what his pastor, Paula White, thinks in the most accurate way possible. So I just don't think that the audience necessarily, their reaction is not in my hands. So I, I can't really worry about that going into a piece. Now, if someone comes and says, you got this wrong, or you missed this nuance, or you should have talked to that person, I absolutely listen and take that into consideration. I'm just not thinking about them necessarily on the front end of when I'm reporting and writing a piece. We need to pause and tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Are you struggling with the call of God in your life? Do you feel like you've been called to ministry? Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other, both in and out of the classroom. We invite you to visit us to learn more about who we are. A master-level visitation day will be held on Tuesday, March the 27th. Individual visits are also welcome. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. As you think about it, I mean, you, you've written on um, so many different things. Like I was, as I was combing through all these, I was like, all right, which one do we bring up? Which one do we mention? <laughs> um, you know, this, this Billy Graham piece as of late, you, you wrote several articles on this. Um, you know, as you think about your work, what, what do you think would surprise us the most? about what you do? Huh. In some ways, I'm the worst person to answer that question, right? Because I don't, I don't know what surprises other people. I think, let's take the Star Wars piece, for example. Um, that felt incredibly self-indulgent. <laughs> 2,000 words writing about a film. Um, now, the way I kind of talked through it with my editor and other people was that this was the most popular film of 2017. Millions and millions of people saw it. And whether you kind of noticed it up front, I think the Star Wars was fairly obvious about its religious message or at least its religious content, but it was there. And so that's a kind of public theology that's being played out, not in a church, but in a movie house. So why wouldn't we talk about it, right? And especially if you think that you have something to say that 
hasn't been brought up. And there were a lot of pieces about Star Wars and religion. And that was part of the, the, the struggle that I had in writing that piece was, what can I say that's different? There have been so, so many good pieces about it. Um, until I kind of struck on, okay, well, it's always been kind of a, a movie that is about Buddhism or a series that's about Buddhism. So how do we view this thing that everyone's arguing about? And, and we can get deeper into this if you want, but basically the scene is, where Yoda and, and Luke Skywalker are seem to be destroying the ancient texts of, of Jediism. And if you look at it from a Buddhist perspective, you kind of question the motivation of why they're doing that. Uh, or at least it's, it's a different kind of argument than just what I had seen was it's a millennial point of view where nothing matters and, and religious experience is, is all important and tradition is kind of to the side. I didn't see it that way at all. Um, and and talking to Buddhists, they didn't see it that way either. They saw it in a very specific kind of way. So I thought that was interesting enough to bring out, but I like to keep different things. I like to keep doing different things. You know, there's the old thing of the foxes and the and the hedgehogs and the hedgehogs dig in, the foxes move from thing to thing. And it just, it's interesting to keep trying to find religion angles and things, talking to different kinds of people and and, and writing about as many different topics as you can. It's a big, beautiful, interesting world. And I like all of it. You know, I don't like this one part of it. I like all of it. I just, lo- I just love the idea of, of you going to the movie theater in DC and, you know, swiping the CNN credit card because you know that, Hey, I have to, <laughs> I have to watch this. And maybe next weekend when I really want to come back and see it again. And, Oh, this $20, you know, tub of popcorn. This is all for reason. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. I still have the ticket on my bureau and I have not um, put it in for reimbursement because <laughs> maybe it's the old kind of religious guilt in me. I had too much fun. <laughs> and so I have not even applied for reimbursement yet. Part of me feels like that's wrong. So, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll just eat the cost. It was a fun piece to write. You know, it, it was it was one of the most fun places I've had to write in, in, in recent kind of years, even though I think it was sort of self-indulgent. <laughs> well, the good news is uh, for the next 10 years, you're going to get one a year. So keep swiping <laughs> that CNN credit card. I'm 99.9% sure they can afford it. <laughs> I'll keep pushing for it. Yeah. So, and there will be a Star Wars every year now, right? I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it seems like uh, there's no end in sight. Uh, and my inner child is screaming at the top of its lungs with so much joy. <laughs> and see, I was never a Star Wars fan. Like I liked it, but I, I was not. I I not intimately uh, knowledgeable about the details of, particularly the prequels. Like I, I obviously grew up with with the series, but like, I, I was not a super fan. So that I actually had a lot to learn going into that piece. It was like studying another religion. And then I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia, just learning exactly <laughs> what uh, Jediism is supposed to teach. And it is like mindfulness meditation. I mean, they directly borrow from Buddhism. So it was interesting. Well, we all have our, our faults and our shortcomings, and I guess we just identified yours. <laughs> I say that as I'm sipping uh, coffee from a tumbler with a uh, Stormtrooper decal on it. So, <laughs> so there's that. We'll, we'll leave my fetish to the side. So uh, on camera or behind the MacBook? What do I prefer? Yeah. 
Oh, definitely behind the MacBook. On camera was um, was terrifying for me. I mean, I, I remember sitting there for my first interview, live interview, and thinking, if I bolt out of this chair right now, will I get fired? And I decided, yes, I would. <laughs> and so I stayed in the chair. But having never done live TV before and someone who does not like being the center of attention, uh, it was a huge adjustment. Um, and I would say that I'm still kind of navigating my way around it. Watching the people here who are really good at it, you realize that it's not so much like a natural skill as something that you learn through a lot of trial and error. And with me, like I do a lot of writing, I'm on TV from time to time, there's just not that much trial. And so I kind of have to learn what I can, pick up, pick people's brains here who I think are really good of whom like there are a lot. Uh, but like at, at my heart, what I would rather be doing is writing any day of the week and twice on Sunday rather than being on TV. Well, your, your work is so well-researched and so well-rounded and uh, it, it, it doesn't come from a particular bias. Um, you know, so I imagine the, you know, the preparation needed for that and then to get on camera, get asked a, you know, spur of the moment question. Um, you can see why other uh, networks just kind of make up stuff as they go and then backtrack on it later on. But um, it's really hard. I mean, asking someone, you know, about a detailed subject, trying to synopsize that in like a soundbite is really, really hard. And, and to like do it accurately and to do it with nuance and depth, uh, especially about religion, it's just hard to do. And so people who can do it well, like Delia Gallagher, our Vatican correspondent, are, are so, so valuable because she can get up there and there and explain, you know, what the Pope said about divorced or remarried Catholics. She can translate it into kind of plain spoken English, she can do it on deadline, she can do it live. Uh, I kind of envy that. I think that's a, a really good skill to have. I just think it's, it's just really hard. As you think around all the things you've written on, and maybe, maybe the last year, what is the most mind-numbing thing you've written about? <laughs> Come so on, be my honest. Dir my dirty little secret is I live in D.C., and I've lived in D.C. For, or around it for a while. And I was looking through the stories that I wrote last year, and there were a lot of politics, um, whether it was kind of Roy Moore or Trump or Neil Gorsuch. It just seemed like there were a lot of politics. And I'm not a politico. I'm not a political animal at all. Uh, and so that, to me, um, is tough. Because I find like political figures to be sort of the least forthcoming about their religion and the most eager to kind of spin their own views in the most positive way. And so they're not, they tend not to be great sources. Uh, and the stories tend to be sort of flat. And so it's not mind numbing. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in that. Like I found Neil Gorsuch's background hugely interesting. And the fact that we don't, still don't know if he's, the only Protestant on the Supreme Court or one of six Catholics. Um, the fact that we don't know that in 2018 is kind of weird. 
he was asked about it in the hearings, but he, he dodged that too. And even his family kind of wouldn't tell me. Um, but most political stories, to be honest, are not my favorite. I will admit that. This last year has been um, not that not that it was set apart from any other year of of tragedies and um, horrific moments. What do you think's been the most gut wrenching piece to write in the last year? Hmm. I think the 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 one that comes to mind right away is the Rob Porter story, where my colleague MJ Lee and I. Um, kind of looked into, so for if your listeners not aware, Rob Porter was a high-level White House staffer who was uh, resigned uh, under pressure after two of his ex-wives came forward with claims that he physically and emotionally abused them. And um, what came out later was that Rob Porter is Mormon and both of these women are Mormon and both said that they had gone to their local church leader about the problem, but had not received the help that they needed. And so kind of, it's obviously a worthy story, right? Because you have women who are in need who are going to a religious institution and they're not getting it. But on the one hand, you do not want to, by any means, make this seem like it's endemic to Mormonism. And you don't have necessarily, you're not in the room when these women are talking to the bishops. You don't know exactly what transpired. And so you obviously can't ignore the story. You have to be fair to everyone on every side about a really, really, really difficult and painful topic. And so I think the experience of of reporting that story and trying to be as fair as possible, I don't know if it was gut-wrenching, but it's the kind of thing where you have sweaty palms, and you double check everything three times and you um, just kind of hope that by shedding light on this, you're doing more good than harm. Hmm. What do you think has been your proudest piece? (laughs) I hate all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Get in line with every uh, minister who preaches a sermon. My wife asked me every Sunday, she's like, how'd you think it went? I was like, it was awful. It was like the worst thing ever. She's like, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, terrible. I I really do. I mean, there, I just am the kind of guy who just, I see the holes. I see where I could have used different words. I see, um, because you, you keep learning, right? And then you go back to those, those pieces with the knowledge that you have, and you're like, why didn't I have the X, Y, or Z? So I, I don't, there are pieces that, that took a long time to report that I'm glad are, um, are done. <laughs> but I'm, I'm honestly not super proud of, of anything that I've done. I'm, I'm more proud of the work I see other people doing uh, than my own. Hmm. That may be a good segue. I know you've got several upcoming projects that are very, uh, very noteworthy. Um, CNN's got uh, a series coming out on the Pope's. Pope's the most powerful man in history um, coming out on March 11th. Tell us a little bit more about that series and your work with it. Yeah. So that is a television miniseries, 10 o'clock this Sunday it starts. Uh, it is 
Um, the narrative or, or the voiceover is done by Liam Neeson, uh, which is kind of awesome. And it kind of just takes a historical look at popes throughout history and the good ones, the bad ones, the ones who bit, helped build the Sistine Chapel, as well as the ones who got into wars with, you know, rival families and whatever. And it, it's really well done. They, there's some reenactment, but the storytelling is what kind of grabs you. Um, they really try to build a mini narrative out of every episode, and they kind of try to attach it to what's going on in Catholicism these days with Pope Francis or his predecessors. There is kind of a news element with each of the episodes. So I, I invite people to, to watch it. Let, let us know your thoughts. Tweet at us at CNN Belief or, or what have you. But um, it should be interesting. And, and I got to go to Rome uh, to do a couple of pieces with our correspondent, Bill Weir, um, on this pope and what he's doing. He's, his fifth year anniversary, the fifth year anniversary of his election is next week. Uh, so he's got a huge kind of complicated legacy already. And we're seeing more polarized Catholic church, at least in the United States, between conservatives and liberals. Lib conservatives are, there was a Pew poll out this week that more than half of uh, Catholic Republicans think he's liberal. Uh, and others think he's too naive. And so there's kind of a split happening there. And then on the more kind of, I don't know what you'd say, happy side, but we followed up with some of the Syrian refugees that the Pope brought back uh, personally on his plane to the Vatican. And we asked them what their lives are like now in Rome and like, how do they deal with being the Pope's personal, you know, immigrants? In, in Rome and, and some of them are 17 year olds and some of them are a little older. So they have a variety of experiences. And all of this is happening, by the way, as Italy was having its election and elected populists or the, the populists got the, got the largest share of votes who want to keep immigrants out. So the, despite the Pope's kind of personal example and his spiritual message, Italians, it seems are going the other way politically. So that was really, really interesting to dig into. Um, and so that story, we did that story and that just came out on air a couple of days ago and we'll follow up with the kind of five year look at what has Pope Francis done in his papacy will come out, I think, next week. Please tell me y'all are doing an entire episode on the Swiss Vatican Guard and their um, amazing uniforms. It's just... They are amazing and they used to be totally badass be honest like they were mercenaries who were really really feared and it's kind of funny to see them now where because of the costume i think people think they're kind of warm friendly fuzzy and, and they are <laughs> nice people but like they were some serious badass back in the day so you don't want to mess with the swiss guard no i'm sorry you can't look at a picture of them without laughing i mean it's, it's like a clown <laughs> outfit it's awesome uh, I'm saying they're going to break into a dance and then bust you over the head with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you've been working on another piece, too, on uh, the 25 most influential Muslim Americans. Tell us a little bit more about that project. Yeah, so this is my current labor of love. It is the most fun I've had and also the reason my hairline is receding really quickly. And so basically our idea was there's a lot of discussion about Muslim Americans. Not a lot of that discussion actually involves Muslim Americans themselves. So how do we put them at the center of this conversation and on the center of this project? 
And so when I spent a, a kind of, not a full year, but uh, close to it, talking to every Muslim American that was in my Rolodex and then asking them for five more people and five more people at, just with the basic open question of who speaks for American Muslims in your community? Who's doing the good work that you appreciate? Who really has the kind of influence uh, over the community? And it's an extremely diverse community that, um, you know, are not the talking heads that you see all the time on cable news. And so we got a really interesting array of people and it's not all religious leaders. Like we have Hassan Minaj, the Daily Show comedian. We have Ibtihaj Muhammad, the Olympic fencer. We have G. Willow Wilson, who writes the Miss Marvel comic series. Of course, we have the religious leaders, the sheikhs, the imams too, but like we have comedians and dancers and fashion people who are all really influential in their own way. And we did videos with them where we asked them to tell us their personal story, why they became Muslim or <clears throat> how they were raised Muslim, as well as what they would want other people to know about American Muslims, about their experience. And some of them, they're pretty emotional, powerful videos. Uh, I still remember one where this, this really well-known imam who actually led the funeral services for Muhammad Ali was telling us about why he became a Muslim. And he was in it inner city neighborhood in Connecticut and he saw this little girl and she was desperately needing help and the people who were helping them helping her were Muslim and he thought that's for me that's what I want to do uh, I want to be on that path and it's that kind of story where like we don't hear that on the news that often you know especially about Muslims in this day and age it's just it was thrilling to be in the room to hear that and it will be even more thrilling to share it with people uh, I think I'm I'm really excited about this one because it has so little to do with me, to be honest. <laughs> well, if you need somebody to go with you um, later this year to see the Han Solo pick, um, I'd be happy to drive up DC. <laughs> we'll put it on CNN's card and then we'll enjoy it together and write a piece on it. Perfect. What religion is Han Solo? And that is a golly. He seems like a, uh, a kind of a skeptic. Um, he comes from the faith of nerf herders, but uh, that's just too much of a Star Wars darkness. <laughs> Former tour guide of Fertility in Intercourse, Pennsylvania, Daniel Burke. You can watch him confidently on television on this channel called CNN. <laughs> Follow him on Twitter at BurkeCNN. Of course, you can find his writing on CNN.com. Daniel, thank you for your superb and diverse writing. Thank you for bringing um, such a steady voice to the landscape of, of religion. And more importantly, thank you for taking the time out to have a conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. This was fun. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or from any other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. 
On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 